How many of you want to be rich? Don't be ashamed to admit it. Put up your hand, like just straight up, if you would like to be rich. Shame on you. Shame. You are so shallow, and you call yourself a Christian. Hey, listen, I admit it. I, I have prayed more than once, usually before I buy a lottery ticket, which I don't do anymore. I've done a few times in my life, I have to admit. Usually before I bu- I, I've bought a lottery ticket, I pray a sort of prayer that goes like this. Lord, if you would just make me rich, I would be such a good rich person. <laughs> I'd be such, not like those other rich people that blow it all on yachts and, you know, all these other things. I would be a good rich person, Lord. Just give me the opportunity. Have you ever prayed that prayer? <laughs> He hasn't answered it yet. <laughs> He's just still praying it. But, uh, or maybe he has answered it. Maybe he has answered it. We're, uh, we're in week two this morning of a series I've called How to Be Rich. We're spending four weeks in two, uh, two chapters of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, where we are discovering what it looks like to be rich, what it looks like to live rich. And I'm excited about what could happen if we as a church just embraced this message? I'm excited about what could happen. I'm excited about what could happen in your life and in the life of your family if you would embrace this message. I'm also concerned that if we didn't buy in uh, on last Sunday's message, that the rest of this is just going to fall on deaf ears or it's going to seem really irrelevant The purpose of last week's message, for those of you who who weren't here, was to redefine what it means to be rich. Because I think we have a skewed perspective on what it means to be rich. Most people define rich as having lots of money. That's what I prayed. That's what I meant when I said, Lord, could you make me rich? Having lots of money. Most people think that money will provide the security and the status and the significance that they really desire in life. And in that sense, we have really not changed as human beings over the millennia. The people in Jesus' day were no different. When Jesus uh, would speak of a rival God, a God that would rival his place in people's hearts, he would normally talk about money. You remember that that he said uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve, you cannot love both God and money. So he, so he knew. He knew the bent of the human heart. He knew that, that most people would try to find in money what really only fully they could find in God, security and status and significance. Paul knew that. That's why he says in Second uh, Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9, the the, the verse that we keyed in on last week, he said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you being poor through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, "I I want to show you what it really means to be rich. It's not having a lot of money. Being rich is knowing and receiving the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You are rich if you have received God's grace through Jesus. You have security, status, and significance through him that you could never find anywhere else, including the riches of this world. 
So what does it mean to be rich? I mean, we, we got to understand this because otherwise you're just going to go, yeah, well, that would be nice to be rich someday. I'll, 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 you know, someday if it ever happens, I'll try to remember what you're saying here. The message is if you know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you have become rich. You feel rich? You're richer than you think. If you know Jesus, do you feel rich? Do you live rich? And, and the purpose of, of what Paul is about to say is to say, okay, now that you know you're rich, I want to tell you how to be rich, how to live rich. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, uh, feel free to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11 of uh, chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I want to zero in here, particularly on verse 10 and 11, and draw from these verses just a few, four principles for rich living that will help us. The first words of verse 10. Now he who supplies, we'll stop there. Now, he who supplies, who's the he? Guesses? God, okay? God. Now, God who supplies. The very first principle, and it's a simple one, but we miss it. Too often, even as Christians, we miss it. Okay? God supplies, he says. You have what you have because God has given it to you. Principle number one. You have what you have because God has supplied it to you. Now, that seems obvious enough, but, but even to the Corinthians, they had forgotten this most basic of truths. If you go back to the first letter, he writes to them. He says in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he kind of takes them to task a little bit because they were prosperous, the Corinthians, more than most. Uh, but they were also proud because of that. And this is what he says to them. Chapter 4, verse 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And now he's toying with them a little bit. Already you have all that you want, you say. Already you have become rich. Wow, good for you. But the question stands for us as well. What do you have that you did not receive from God? What's the answer to that question? Nothing? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe it's nothing? Okay, now that's the right answer. But I, th I think too often that's not the answer we actually live with, right? 
I mean, there's some things that maybe feel like we see the connection between God and, and that thing in our life, but, but there are many things we fail to see how God's even involved in it. Um, maybe it's your career. Uh, you know, I, there's, especially in the Western culture with rugged individualism, we kind of have this self-made man idea, right? I am where I am because, boy, I worked harder than others. And when they were playing, I was studying. And then I, and I didn't spend, I saved it in my college. When I went to college, I got a good education. I studied hard, and, and, I, and I beat on all those doors until I found that good job, and I've worked hard, and that's, I am where I am because. And, and what he's saying is, listen, you have played a role in what you have today, he says. But, but apart from God, you would have none of what you have. He put, you, he put you in the country, he put you in. He put you in the family, he put you in. He gave you the opportunities he gave you. He gave you the health that you needed to, to, to strive for that thing. If, if you trace everything you have back, we will find that everything ultimately comes from the hand of God. There's nothing that we have that we have not received. And, th- and that's not just material things, Right? It's not just jobs and money and, and whatever else, houses and land. He, because he, he even says in, in verse 11, which is kind of a restatement of verse 10, he says, you will be enriched in how many ways? You will be enriched in every way. You'll be made rich in every way. Okay? There are different ways to be rich. Right? Some of you, maybe you're, not, maybe you're not as rich in the financial sense of the world, but, but you have been given something you are rich in ways. Maybe you have been given time. Now, retired people always tell me they're just as busy or more busy when they're retired than before they were retired. Is that true? That's a load of crock. <laughs> Come on, that can't be true. All of us that are working, that's what we're working for. Don't tell us that. We're working to take it easy. I don't, know if, I don't know if retired people just say that so that you won't ask them to do stuff or what it is exactly. But, but what he's saying is, hey, you're retired, you're rich. You're rich in time, maybe. Retirement, God has given that to you. Right? Your talents, your skills, your giftedness, your expertise in whatever it is, God has given it to you. He's allowed you to have it. The experiences you have you have because God has allowed you to have those experiences that come from your hand. Everything you have, you have because God has given it to you and it's important that we recognize that because if we don't, then you're never gonna ask God why you have it. You're only gonna talk to yourself. You're gonna say, well, what am I gonna do with that? But, but if everything we have has been received, has been supplied by God, then we won't make this assumption, the assumption that it's for our consumption, which is what we normally do. I mean, you just look around, maybe in your own life, certainly your neighbors, income, standard of living, income, standard of living, income, standard of living, income, standard of living, income, st- standard of living. That's, I think, where some of us fall too, right? But, but why? Because there's the assumption that it's for our consumption. Because we don't stop to think, who gave it to us? How we got it? Right? If God is your supplier of all that you have, 
then, then, then the proper question is not to ask yourself, what do I do with this? It, it's to look to God and go, God, what do I do with it? Why do I have it? It's, it's not a problem to have. If you have, it's because God's given. That's great. It's a problem to have and not know why you have it. To not ask why you have it. So that first principle is everything you have, you have because God has supplied it to you. God is the supplier. And what has God supplied? Verse 10, let's go back there. Now he who supplies, what's the next word? Is that what your Bible says? It's not what my Bible says. Now he who supplies seed, okay? Now he who supplies seed. It's interesting being that this is uh, the largest chunk of Scripture in the whole Bible on the subject of money and giving. And yet not once do we have the word money. What word keeps coming up over and over again? Seed. Seed. It's the language of farming. Um, and, and that's purposeful because if someone handed you a bunch of money, it's, it's maybe not self-evident what that's for. But if someone hands you a big bag of seed, what do you think? What do you think? What's a bag of seed for? It's for planting. Seed is for sowing, right? Isn't, and, and that's what he says. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower, okay? Seed is for sowing. Seed is for planting. In other words, what God has given you, he has given you. It is seed, Whatever it is, it's seed. And what do you do with seed? You plant seed. You sow it. You give it away. That's what planting is. Okay? So here's the second principle. Whatever God has given you, he has given you to sow. Jesus said in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Pretty simple idea. Whatever God has given you, he has given you to sow. It is seed. In other words, Paul says, you're not, you're not ultimately owners of everything. Everything you have, you have because God has given it to you and he has entrusted it to you. You are a steward. You are a steward of whatever that is. Do you see it as seed? Do you see what you have as seed? If you don't see it as seed, you, you probably are, are, won't plant it. You probably won't plant it. Do you see your... Not just, he's talking about these principles. That this is way bigger than money. Okay? Do you see your time as seed? Do you see your expertise in your career profession? Do you see it as seed? Do you see your experiences, even the hard experiences of your life, as seed to be sown. In the first sermon here was, was Herman Huging. Some of you will know Herman. And, and some of you will know his story that he's gone through terminal cancer a few times. <laughs> and God has brought him through it each time by God's grace. And I was talking with someone this week who has someone very close to them who is just, their world is rocked with a diagnosis of stage four cancer. And, and so I, I was going to say to this person, you know, I know somebody who, who maybe can help. 
because Herman has stated that he feels God has allowed him to go through this so he can help people who have been there, who are there. And I said, I know this guy named Herman, and he stopped me right away and said, he's there today. He's already there. He's been there three times. And I go, well done, Herman. Well done, Herman. I mean, he, he even sees the bad experiences of his life and he looks at that, he looks at the cancer, he looks at all that and he says, that's seed. God has allowed me to receive even the hard things so that I can take it and I can plant it in other people's lives. That I, that I can give. But you're not gonna plant it if you don't see what you have as seed. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And so now this is when you normally think the, the pastor is building up to like a guilt trip about giving. Lock the doors, ushers. Lock the doors, okay? No. You, you've, you've probably heard guilt trip, you know, manipulating money sermons. and That's not what Paul's about here, Okay? He doesn't bring guilt in this equation at all. In fact, he despises it. He speaks against it. In verse 7, he says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not out of guilt, he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we see the third principle here. Generosity is not a response to guilt. It's a response to grace. In fact, in these two chapters about giving and generosity, you might think the most common G word would be giving or generosity. But it's not. The most common word in these two chapters is grace. Ten times. Ten times grace. Grace. I, I mean, he, he doesn't want us to miss that generosity, the basis of generosity is the grace of God received. Which when we receive it, works in us grace so that we then share grace with others, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's the way that we delight in and enjoy the grace of God to us. This is what he means when he says God loves a cheerful giver, someone who knows that they've received grace and then delights in, in giving it themselves. I mean, this is so important because if, if you're giving, if you're serving, if you're planting of those seeds, whatever you're doing, is you're doing because, because you better, because you were told to, because that's what God expects. I mean, if that's the motivation, then, then it's going to be hard, it's going to be unpleasant, it's going to be minimal. But God loves a cheerful giver, which doesn't mean wait till you're cheerful before you give. Like, don't wait, don't wait in marriage to be monogamous until you want to be monogamous? Like, I mean, like, you, you, you do it out of duty, but you don't settle with duty. You pursue delight. The most common word is grace. Pa Paul wants to make clear, God's grace to you generates grace in you and through you. So much so that we looked at these verses last week, that the Macedonian church he talks about in chapter eight, it says they had a severe affliction and extreme poverty, and yet they had an overflowing joy that welled up in rich generosity. He goes on to say, they pleaded for the privilege, the word privilege, that's the word it uses in my Bible, is the word grace in Greek. They pleaded, with the, they, they pleaded for the grace of giving. Please let us, 
That, that, that was these people. Can you relate to that? Please let us be a part of this. Please allow us to give grace because they were oh so aware and, and, and delighted in what they had received from God. So Paul says the natural response to God's grace received is generosity. And, and, and he's not, he says, I'm not going to command you and I'm not, I'm not going to compel you because true generosity cannot be commanded and it cannot be compelled. It has to come freely as a natural response to an understanding of grace received. You see this in the life of Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little man? You know the story, most of you, right? I mean, there was a guy who, who, looked, to, who looked for all of that in money. Rich man. He looked for security, status, significance in money. And then he meets Jesus, and he has that meal with Jesus in his home, and we don't know what was said in there. But he comes out a changed man. When the doors open on that private conversation, you see a totally different Zacchaeus. The first words out of his mouth are, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus didn't have to tell him. He didn't say, okay, now that you, uh, you've met me, you believed in me, let's talk about your giving habits. Let's set some goals, some guidelines here. How about half? I think God wants half. There was no conversation. There were no rules. He had been changed by the grace of God, and the joy of that in his life welled up in rich generosity. Unlike the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees who, oh yeah, they gave. They gave their tithe. But, but it was given out of duty. It was given to, so they could check off, fulfilled that law, got God off my back, did it. He can't tell me I didn't do it. I did it. So much so that the Bible tells us that the Pharisees would actually take the herbs out of their garden and cut up their herbs, their dill, and, and find exactly 10% of their dill. Now, have any of you done this? If you've done this, you're crazy, okay? Like these, we don't want dill in the offering plate, by the way, okay? Got nothing to do with dill. But, but they wanted to make sure that it was definitely 10% because God would not be happy with them if it was 9%. But they wanted to make sure it wasn't 11%. That's why they measured it. They wanted to fulfill the law. 10%. There it is. There's my offering unto the Lord. And Jesus says, then those same people would walk by the beggar whose life was just ruined by some illness, couldn't feed his family, begging on the street, no health insurance back then. Walked by, saw the need, and, 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 and walked straight by, had zero mercy and zero generosity because in his mind he said, I, I fulfilled that law, I checked the box. Because that giving was motivated by duty, by the law. Paul says giving is not a law. There's no giving law. Um, in fact, now, I hesitate to say this because even though in, in quiet rooms pastors talk about this, we never say it to our people. This is a secret. The tithe is not a New Testament principle. You know why pastors are terrified to tell their church that? Because they're scared that if people hear that, they'll go, what? You mean I don't have to? 
Oh, now if the very first thing that came to your mind was, Usher, can you please back, pass back my envelope? I'm going to mark that down there a little bit. Apparently, I don't have to give 10%. That's not a law that God commands of me. If that's the very first thought that comes to your mind, you know what you're motivated by? Law and guilt. And I guess we have a really low threshold for you. This is why pastors are scared to talk about that because they think that maybe people will be less generous. But Paul wasn't worried about that. In fact, he worked under a different assumption, which is the New Testament assumption in all areas of life, which was this. Grace would cause you to be more generous than the law ever would. That's the assumption he's working on. If you really know the grace of God, the result of that within you will be a desire to give, a delight in giving, to be generous, more generous than you could ever be compelled to be by a law. So Paul doesn't talk about formulas, amounts. He's not interested in that because it's not about that. He keeps talking about the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Law and guilt says, what do I have to give? But grace says, what can I give? What can I do? Where can I plant it? How can I plant it? That's what grace says. Now what do I have to do? What can I do? So what what motivates you? What motivates you? God's grace in us generates generosity, abundant generosity, and joyful generosity. That third principle, generosity is not a response to to guilt, but it's a response to God's grace. And finally, generosity enriches the giver, Paul tells us. Generosity enriches the giver. Have you ever, who's a farmer in here? Farmers? Farmer? You're a turkey farmer, that doesn't count. (laughs) Like real farmers, people that actually work for a living. (laughs) Okay, there's a few, okay, yep, there's a few farmers here. So let me ask you farmers, because you know this. Do you ever begrudge having to put seed in the ground? Do you ever look at all that seed and go, man, I hate to have to give this away? I mean, I wish I could just keep that in the silo where it belongs, but I gotta put it in the ground. Like, do you ever begrudge the seed you have to give away? Why not? It multiplies, right? Because you, you're already anticipating and finding joy in the harvest, in the multiplication of the seed. So you don't begrudge giving the seed. In fact, giving the seed planting then becomes the opposite. It becomes the avenue to joy. It becomes the way to be rich. And so, Paul, this is all dripping with with farm language, the language of sowing and harvesting. And so he says in verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, as he supplies it, as you see it as, uh, and you see it as seed, and then you plant it, the result will be an enlarged 
a store of seed. It will be a harvest for you. There will be a harvest for your righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, when you give, you're going to get more. You're going to be richer by giving. This is what he says in verse 6. I mean, it's very clear. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, he's not talking about this practice that you see on TV with a televangelist where people want to be rich. They want to have all that money, so they're promised that if they give this, then they're going to get all of that, and it's really an exercise in greed. That's not what he's talking about here. Because if we see it as seed, when you harvest, when you harvest next year, this year, all that seed, you had more seed than you planted. But then what do you do with that seed? More to plant. More to plant. And that's what he says here. He who sows generously will also reap generously, will keep compounding in their life. Blessings will abound. Not just material blessings, spiritual blessings, all sorts of blessings will abound in your life. This is the promise of God. This is what God promised his people in the Old Testament. They're right at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. When, when the people are not being generous as they ought to be generous, he says in, in Malachi 3.10, he, um, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in, in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Test me in this, he says. There's only one time in the Bible where God says test me, and it's right here. And why does he have to say test me in this? Because it's counterintuitive that when you give away, you actually get more. That when you lose, you actually gain. That when you plant the seed, you get more. He says, test me. See what I would give you. See how I would bless you. The problem with being tight-fisted, according to Paul, is that, 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 that fist that clenches those things you have is yours. That no one else has a right to, including God. The problem with that is, is those same closed fists prevent you from receiving the blessings of God, whatever that might be. But the promise of God is that if you sow generously, you will reap generously. This is the promise. I mean, what do you not receive because your, your, your fists are clenched? Who knows? You'll never know, I guess. But when we are open-handed, say, God, everything's yours. You put it in my care. What do you want me to do with it? I'm willing to do whatever you want. I, I want to use it for, to, mul- to multiply grace. Then with those open hands, we can receive all the many blessings that God would want to give to us, that he promises to give to those who live by grace, to those who are generous. Generosity is the avenue to gain, to joy. So the question for you as we wrap up, because, because you need to go away and, and think. You need to ask yourself a question. What seed has God given you? I mean, maybe you even want to go home and make a list so that you, there are things in your life that you've never thought of before as seed, but they're seed. And because you've never thought of it as seed before, you've never planted it before. What seed has God given you? How will you plant that seed? You know, I, I hope it can be said of us as a church, as Paul said of, of those Macedonian churches, that they pleaded for the privilege of giving, 
of serving. New Life Church, that's a church that pleads for the privilege of planting what God has given them, that finds great joy in the harvest that comes in planting that seed. If we know God's grace in our life, we will count it a privilege to give. We're going to come to this table now. I, I think it's, uh, it's a really appropriate Sunday to come and take communion together as a response to this message because this is a table of grace. That's what this bread and this cup represents. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before Jesus. So in other words, the cross, as hard as it was, was also an act of joy for him. It was a pursuit of joy. And what was the joy that allowed him to endure the cross, that caused him to lay down his life? What was the joy? Yeah, I know, I put you to sleep. I get it. What was the joy? You, you, you are the joy. He saw through the cross and he saw the harvest of his life. And you are the product. Your life. That's the joy that caused him to plant. I mean, when he said in, in John 12, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, and dies, it remains a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. He was talking most fully about his own life, which he was to lay down in the ground and which was to die, which would produce many seeds, and you are those seeds. We are those seeds. It's his death that brings us life. It's through his wounds that we are made whole. And that's what this table is all about. That Jesus loved us and he was generous and he laid down his life so that we who are dead might have life. We who are hurting might be made whole. Think of that as you take this cup and as you take this bread. We're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of just having quiet reflection as, as this has passed, we're going to sing together. We're going to worship as an act of thanksgiving, a response of thanks to God for the grace that this represents in our lives. And so um, I'm going to pray. You can bow with me in prayer before this is passed and before we worship together. And as I pray, the, the helpers can come to the table. <clears throat> Father God, we love you. We love you because you have first loved us because you laid down your life to bring us life. And you counted it great joy. It was not a burden for you. It was something that came from your heart because you wanted us for yourself. You wanted life for us. And so you laid down your own. We thank you, Lord Jesus that you were obedient to death, that you willingly laid down your life, you planted your seed so that we might live.
Father, we just pray that the same grace that we have received, Father, may work in us to well up rich generosity that we might bring grace to others. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.